For the next five Sundays, that's what we're going to be going over, Jesus. This new sermon series, just simply called Jesus, this Easter experience, just Jesus. No fancy words, no, you know, tricky title to, to, with catchy, catchy ideas in it, just simply Jesus. Because, simply because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the reason why we gather. I mean, what else, what else do we need to say? Jesus, that says it all, doesn't it? He's the reason we live and breathe. He's the revelation of what God is really like, no matter what other people have maybe, maybe have told you. His name is the one we call on and worship and prayer. His name or his authority is above all other authorities. That's that idea that his name is above all other names. That's what that means, that his name. When we pray in his name, we're praying in his authority. Jesus. That's what we stand in. We stand in, I mean, the more I, longer I'm a Christian, the more I realize, my goodness, this is huge. This is not just a a religion that, that I've bought into, that maybe I've been brainwashed. This is real. Jesus is real. So let's, Let's, let's begin this, this series, not just even this morning, but let's begin this series at his beginning. And, 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 and this is not a Christmas sermon. I don't mean that. You know, it's almost Easter, y'all. I'm not talking about Mary in the manger here, his beginning. I'm talking the beginning, the big inning. You know, baseball is in the Bible, right? In the big inning, right? You ever heard of that before? I'm sorry. Yeah, it's pretty lame. So let's look at John chapter 1 before we pray and really dive into the sermon. Let's look at John chapter 1 verse 1. This is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And if we skip down to verse 14, it says, The Word The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, John says, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the word. He is the word of God. He is the logos of God. The Greek word there, logos of God. It's the the declared, the spoken word. That is what the logos, that word logos means. He is the the declaration of what, and the revelation of, of what, who God is and what God does. It is through Jesus Christ, the word of God, that we read and understand the Bible, the scriptures that we hold so valuable and that we will explore this morning. So let's pray. Father, we boldly come to you. We want to know you more and to grow in your grace. Jesus Christ, our risen and living Lord, you are the word of God. And we ask you to speak to us this morning through the words of the scriptures. And by your Holy Spirit, help us to hear and understand what you want to impart to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I stand amazed. And you know, we, we sing these songs, you know, Amazing Grace. And it's an old song. It's been around for, what, 200 some odd years, right? And, 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 and it's easy to just kind of... Oh, you know the song, we sing it because it's, you know, it's an old, old standard of the church. I mean, everyone sings it, I think, right? But, but amazing. His grace really is amazing. If we stop and just don't gloss over the fact that, hey, I know that song. Yeah, I, I like that song. That might even be your favorite song, but it's still easy to get lost in 
the familiarity of it and forget how amazing his love, his grace is toward us. So let's look at, let's begin this first sermon, this first sermon of this five-part series, Jesus. And let's look at John chapter 4. Staying in the gospel of John, John chapter 4, verse 1. Okay, before we go there, so in verse, in chapter 3, chapter 2, everybody knows, is, or maybe you don't know. This is where he did the miracle with the, turning the water into wine, you know, at the wedding of Canaan, verse, chapter 2. And then that's what everybody knows in chapter 2. And in chapter 3 is where he meets with the, I think it's Nicodemus, the, uh, the Pharisee. And he's talking about being born again. Now, this is a Pharisee. This is a Jew. And I'm setting this up on purpose. So he's a Jew. And this Jewish guy is really struggling to understand this young rabbi, Jesus. And he says, well, you, how am I supposed to be born again? Do I enter back into the mother's womb? I mean, what, what are you talking about? I'm an adult. How is that even possible? And Jesus said, you have to be born again in the spirit, all this sort of thing. Nicodemus, it doesn't seem like Nicodemus got it. This is key. It doesn't seem like he got it. John chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus is beginning his ministry, starting to expand and grow fast even. So much so that it says, John chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the village of near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well, and it was about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please, give me drink. And he was alone at the time, because the disciples had gone back into the village to buy some food, and the woman was surprised, for Jews refuse to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, You are a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. I love how he just twists things all the time. <laughs> they come to him with a question. They come to stumble him. He throws a question back and they're like, uh, Well, okay, never mind. If you only knew the gift God has for you. Verse 11, But sir, you don't, she says, You don't have a rope or a bucket. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? Beside, who do you think you, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I will give will never be thirsty again. It will be out become, it becomes a fresh and bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And the woman said, please, sir, give me this water that I will never be first thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. Jesus told her, go get your husband. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband for you've had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that Jews insisted that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. 
You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed, it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is Christ. When he comes, will he explain everything to us? And Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why, why are you talking to her? The woman left her jar behind, beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So when the people came from the village to see him, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging, so the people that streaming from the village to come see him. So in verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus said, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him something while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. And then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between plant and harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe. The harvesters are paid good wages. And the fruit they harvest is people brought to an eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvest alike. You know the saying, one plants, another harvests. And it's true. I sent you into the harvest where you didn't plant. And others had already done the work. Now you will get, get to gather the harvest. And verse 39 continues the story with the Samaritans. Many Samaritans went the village from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said he had told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. And then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard ourselves, we now know that he indeed is the savior of the world. And no, I'm not going to read you the rest of the gospel. I know there's a lot of verses that we just read through. But it's one whole story. And if we just read one part of it, we miss the whole story. Most of the time when, when people preach from this, this, this set of verses, most, most of the time, and rightfully so, they focus on the idea of the worship of God, right? The true worship. You know, the, the, those that are true worshipers will worship Him in spirit. That's not what we're going to focus on this morning. I've taught about it. I've studied it. You've probably heard of it too. Today we're going to approach these verses from a different perspective. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me some water to drink. The woman said, How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for water? Jesus replied, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give will never be thirsty again. The book of John, chapter 4. They say your life could change in an instant. And mine did when a Jewish man asked me, a Samaritan, for a drink. I have been drinking from the same well for more years than I could count. 
for me, change seemed impossible. I didn't even want it. But the well always left me thirsty. So I came back to it over and over. No one else could see me. I always came alone. The truth was, I had no husband. He told the truth. The real part of my life. The one I tried to hide, but he looked right through me and met me where I was. He wasn't ashamed of me. He wasn't angry. In my life, I thought I'd experienced love. I, I thought I was pretty good at finding it, too. But I didn't even know what love was. On an ordinary day, I went to draw water and had a thirst quenched I didn't even know I had. I don't know if they'll believe me, but I gotta try. I gotta tell them I found the Messiah. Rather, he found me. She says, I gotta tell them, I found the Messiah, or rather, he found me. He found me. Remember that, he found me. So I apologize up front, our main text this morning, it was long, I know I read a lot of verses to you, and it probably, or probably, well, what is he gonna talk about if he's not gonna talk about worship? It says something that John devoted 42 verses. 40, 42 verses we read through. It says something that he devoted all these 42 verses in this fourth chapter to tell one story. Most of the stories are not that long in any of the Gospels. Most of them. Some of them are, sure. But there's something about this story that John was determined to spend 42 verses on. And this passage is more than an introduction, instruction of true worship. Under the surface, there's more than just Jesus sermonizing about worship. It's the story of Jesus' radical encounter that crossed social, political, religious, cultural, and ethnic norms. He was changing something. Jesus was moving his base of ministry right at the beginning there. So he's, he's, he's in Judea. He's in the city most likely called Ephraim, and, um, where he had been in chapter 3. And uh, he's starting to stir things up there with the, the Jewish religious leaders. And he realizes, hey, I don't, it's not time for that yet. So I'm going to move, go up north to Galilee. Now, go ahead, and, uh, go ahead and put that map up there. Yeah, so he's down here in Ephraim. And he's going to go up to Galilee, which is the northern parts up. You see where Nazareth is, right? Sea of Galilee up there at the top. So to get there, you have to either go through or around Samaria. Everything he did, just remember this too, everything he did 
seems like it was always perfectly timed, just perfect, right? Throughout his story. Traveling to Galilee was a, a bit of a long trek, but not a big deal. Typically, they went around the Jews going from the southern ports, Judea going up to Galilee. They would go up, cross the Jordan, go up and around. And you might ask why. I mean, point A to point B, it's kind of obvious, right? Well, the Samaritans were the reason why. So I'm going to read this, this, this little bit of backstory. If you don't know about the Samaritans, you're going to know about them now. The land of Samaria was filled with an ethnically and religiously mixed group of people known as Samaritans. The Jews and Samaritans were like oil and water. They hated and despised one another. Theirs was a family feud that had been boiling for centuries, reaching back to the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom of Israel back in 722 B.C. Inhabitants of the land were captured and deported. It was a terrible time of pain, sorrow in Israel's history. But as centuries unfolded, captives were released. Some stayed true to their ancient Jewish heritage and ways of the past, while others, even most, intermarried across ethnic lines, which was a no-no, and invited cultural, ethnic, and religious differences into their lives. This started the deep divide among the Jewish people and the Samaritans that seethed with hatred, racism, and more conflict than I can explain with our limited time this morning. Needless to say, there was no love lost between the Jews and Samaritans due to those historic wounds. And with the mixing of Hebrew and Gentile bloodlines and the Samaritan genealogies and the arguments over the true and proper location from which to worship God, these two people groups were often very hostile to each other. So much so that Jews typically went up and around not straight through, to avoid those dirty Samaritans. But John chapter 4, verse 4, go ahead and put that up there, it says this. It says, but he had to go through Samaria. He had to, had to. Some versions say he needed to. So there's no loss there. From one translation to another, there was something compelling him to go through Samaria. He had to go through. Remember, this is Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, and it seems that everything he did was perfectly timed and arranged. Let's go look at the the map again, the next map there. It's like he was searching for an X on a map, right? He wanted to uncover some buried treasure in that specific region of the map. John 4 says, he had to go through Samaria. And let me, let me tell you this. I think that this might be the most powerful verse in the entire set of verses we read. 1 through 42. Yes, even more important than the true worship verses that seems like it's always the focus, right? He had to go through Samaria. In this verse, we see the divine mission of Jesus as the ultimate reconciler. It's at least hinted and we get a glimpse of it. In this verse, we see Jesus extending truth, grace, and salvation to all people. And he could have and culturally should have led his Jewish disciples up and around. But no, he went straight through. He had to go through Samaria because he wanted to reveal something. He wanted to break down walls. So he comes to a well. Comes to Jacob's well, a little bit outside of Sychar. And he's waiting for his divine appointment to arrive. And she does. Let's look at John chapter 4, verse 7 through 9. It says, Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. And he was alone at the time, 
because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with the Samaritans, remember? She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Let me say this. A a Jewish man initiating a conversation with a Samaritan woman is just a a cultural no-no. I mean, it's, it's a reputation killer for our rabbi, such as Jesus. In fact, if you remember when his Jewish disciples, remember they're Jewish too, right? They come walking back from the village with food and they're like, what? John, what? P- Peter, what is he? Who is he talking? Why is he? That's a Samaritan. What is he doing? You, why don't you ask him why? No, I'm not asking him. No way I'm not asking him that. Well, 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 ask him what they're talking about. I'm not talking to them. That's, I'm, not, I'm not getting involved in this. Bro, I know there's going to be a fight break out or something. Let me tell you, that did happen. There were clashes, little civil wars that would happen from time to time. They didn't want to get involved. It was awkward for her. Remember, she's like, hey, what are you doing talking to me? It was awkward for her. It was awkward for them. What is he doing? Wait, does he, did he forget who he is? But it was intentional for Jesus. It seems everything he did was perfectly timed. And we're not going to read through them, but in verses 10 through 15, Jesus begins to reveal to this woman that he's in fact a source of life that never runs dry, that quenches every thirst and need, that brings eternal life and salvation. How wonderful. And she's, she's amazed. She's, we're waiting for the Messiah. He says, I am the Messiah. And she's like, oh, what? He's revealing all these things to her and she's, she's convinced. And she goes back and tells her people, right? But before she does that, John 4, 21 through 23 says, Jesus replied, she said, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father in this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. We Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now, he said. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. Let me tell you, this is again not an instruction in worship. He's breaking down walls. Right then and there, he says, it's indeed right now. It doesn't matter about Mount Gerizim. It doesn't matter about Jerusalem. The Father is seeking people who will truly worship him. A people. Not Samaritans, not Jews. And yeah, I realize he said, he said, he said uh, the Jew, salvation comes through the Jews. He didn't say salvation is for the Jews. He said salvation comes through the Jews. He's talking about himself. He's talking about the Messiah. That's just the way it's going to be. The Messiah comes through the Jews for the world. Not for the Jews. Yes, for the Jews. I'm not excluding them. I'm saying it's not excluding everybody else. And that's what Jesus is trying to say. Indeed, the time is now. He's breaking down walls. It's less about instruction and worship. It's more about, hey, I've come to bring something. Eternal life. Waters that never run dry. Waters that you'll never be thirsty again. That you think that you're empty, you'll never be empty. You'll be filled. Here we see Jesus breaking down the divide between Jews and the rest of the world. There is now one group of true worshipers that are unbound to a mountain or a city. Yes, he said that salvation is through, but not for the Jews. Not just for the Jews. This is a testament 
that the Messiah has come to save the whole world. We're no longer separated, but we're united in Christ. Remember we, when we were doing it and if, if studying Ephesians several months back, we read that in chapter, chapter 2, the second half of chapter 2. He says, we're no, no, longer, no longer separated. We're together as a family. Jew, Gentile, Jew, Samaritan, and Gentile. We're together in Christ. So why did Jesus have this life-altering, life-saving conversation with this woman? Why did he had to go through Samaritan? Was it to teach her how to finally worship God correctly and bring an end to the worship wars between the Jews and the Samaritans? Was it to further spread his fame to another ethnic people? Was it simply to reveal that he was the promised Messiah? No. His why, his motivation was love. Love. Love is his reason and motivation. Love was his why. Love is the crux of the matter. And love, let me tell you, love is not just some gushy, sappy feeling that emotional people experience. Love is not just some feeling of elation experienced by those that have never been hurt, abused, or neglected. Love, okay, Jesus gave two commandments, right? Actually, it's, it was response from somebody he was speaking with. In uh, Luke chapter 10, he says, he asked the man, and the guy says, uh, what are the commandments? He says, uh, well, to love God and to, to, love, to love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus replies, that's a good answer. It's true. Do those things, and you're, you're good to go. So in other words, Jesus gave them. That's the A-OK. Those are his commands. Love God, love others. And it's interesting, by the way, that right after he says, love your neighbor, the guy is like, trying to make excuses well then trying to trying to limit the law a little bit if you will he says Who, who's my neighbor and what is the story that jesus tells us anybody remember the what the who the samaritan samaritan again what's jesus doing he's breaking down walls he's saying my love is not limited that's the one thing that is not limited my love Love, or to be sacrificially devoted to giving of oneself to another. That's, that's what it means. Sacrificially devoted to giving of oneself to another. He did not just command it. He lived it. That's important. He didn't just tell you, now you go love. Don't watch me, but you go love. No, he lived it perfectly, didn't he? Love is what motivated Jesus not to go around the map, but go straight through. Love is why he had to go through Samaritan, despite the conflict or awkwardness or reputation ruining that might be encountered. Love is what moved Jesus to go find that woman. Remember, she says, he found, I, I, I found him, but he found, it's true, he found her. He had to go. He was compelled to go because I got to reach these people. They no longer can be separated. They need to know that I love them. They need to experience the eternal life that I give. Love motivated him to find that woman at the well and bring the life-giving waters of salvation to a people that most Jews felt were undeserving at best. She says, remember, she says, I got to tell them I found the Messiah, or rather, he found me. Let me say, it's, it's, it's rather fitting that we, we did communion this morning. At first, I was like, wow, man, it's taking up more of my time. I got to hurry up and preach now and got to do a song at the end. Yeah, we're going to do a song at the end. 
I hope, time-wise. Um, so I've got to figure out how to... But communion is wonderful. I read this quote today, or yesterday. Yeah, it was yesterday from a, a pastor friend of mine in, in, in Detroit. And let's look at it. It says, Jesus knowingly gave communion to a doubter, a denier, and a traitor. Think about that for a second. Jesus knowingly gave communion to a doubter, a denier, and a traitor. Before you say, well, you know, the doubter, Thomas didn't, you know, hadn't doubted yet. Let me tell you, he didn't struggle. He didn't all of a sudden just come up with that struggle after the resurrection. He probably was already struggling with it. And I know for a fact that Peter had problems already because just a couple few days before Jesus says, well, we got to go up to Jerusalem. I got to die in short. And Peter, what does Peter respond? No, we're not going to let that happen. Uh-uh. And Jesus, what is Jesus' response? Get behind me. You don't know what you're talking about. He was doubting already. He was struggling already. He was denying already. And traitor, okay, so you can say, well, Judas, he didn't really do the trading, betraying, yeah, come on, he, he started before, just a few verses before what we read, what we read the story of, of his betrayal, just a few verses before the actual betrayal, before the actual Passover meal and the Lord's Supper has happened, he's, he's, he's upset with Jesus, he's been upset with Jesus for the way he handles money, the way he treats people. It's like, this is, you're supposed to be the Messiah. You're not supposed to be loving people. You're supposed to be, you know, bringing the, the Romans into subjection. When are you going to take your throne for crying out loud? We're tired of waiting. Stop your teaching and start your ruling. He doesn't have a clue. So he trades him, trades him, betrays him rather. Jesus knowingly gave communion to a doubter, a denier, a traitor. That's love. That's love, that's mercy, that's living in active, not reactive, forgiveness. Not to mention all the rest of them that, didn't, that, that cut and run, right? When the, guy, the guards came to arrest Jesus, they all ran. Abandoning him. This brings love, that, the idea that love covers a multitude of sin. You've heard that, that verse before. This brings that to a new level, doesn't it? Jesus loves amazingly. It's amazing. Communion is not just for the perfect or the flawless. Communion brings each one of us together in Christ. Amidst all our faults and failures, Christ draws himself at the table, draws us to himself at the table of the Lord to eat together. And at this table, he calls us his own. He calls us his family. This is love. His love does not always make sense, does it? I mean, I, I, if I knowingly had a doubter at my table, and I was Jesus, and a, and a denier and a trait, a trait of betrayer, somebody's going to stab me in the back. I've been backstabbed before. Let me tell you, I didn't react so nicely. I know I wouldn't have given the sop, as it said. That was a thing of honor. Jesus wasn't just marking the man who was going to betray him. That was, a, that was traditionally a, a, an act of honor for the, the host to give to his honored guest. This is what he treated, how he treated the betrayer. Honoring him. He loves, Jesus loves the unloved and the unlovable. 
He loves the Jew and the Samaritan. He draws to himself the outcast. And he also loves the hateful and the mean people. His love does not always make sense. It's not always easy for us to grasp. It's sometimes shocking and awkward for us. He loves not just the wounded, but even the wounders. He calls out for forgiveness for the people who mock him on the cross. He calls out for forgiveness for the people who called for his execution as well as his executioners, all without their asking. Just gives it. This is a living and active, not reactive forgiveness. This is the love of Christ. There's a song. It's called Reckless Love. If you put the lyrics up there, it says, Oh, the overwhelming never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you gave yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. That word, oh, is not just filler. It's a cry. It's a cry, not a cry of anguish, not a cry of pain, not a cry of tears and sadness. It's a cry of wonder and awe and amazement. That's the amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It's a cry of praise. My son, Jaron, his five-year-old Jaron, his name is Jaron. And it comes from a Hebrew word, Yaron, that means a cry of praise. That is what his name means. It's, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God chases me down. This love chases us. It fights for us. This is the love that had to go through Samaria. Had to go. Is compelled to chase after the woman at the well until he found her. This is the love that leaves the 99 for you. If you don't know what that is, it's from Matthew 18, uh, where he says, you know, hey, what shepherd who has 100 sheep doesn't leave the 99 for that one that goes, gets lost? That's what he does for us. He leaves the 99 and goes and gets you. He doesn't leave you abandoned. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. It's not that he left the 99. They're safe. They're good. I need to go get this one. I had to go through Samaria. I have to go get this one. This is the love of Christ that Paul so eagerly and fervently prayed that we understand in Ephesians 3 verse 14. He says, I fall to my knees, Paul said, and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray from his glorious unlimited resources that he will empower you with the inner strength through his spirit then christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him your roots will grow down into god's love and keep you strong and may you have the power to understand as all people god's people should how wide how long how high and how deep his love is may you experience the love of christ though it is too great to understand fully Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power to at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we can even ask or think. The full and life, the full life and power that we so often hope for and seek comes from the love of Christ. 
The foundation of God's power is God's love. This is why God, John said in his first epistle, 1 John, he says, God is love. God is love. This is not an attribute. This is not a, a great character quality. This is his very being. Everything flows from his love. Everything flows from God's love. It's amazing. The giving and sharing of love and salvation is the will of God that fed Jesus. That giving, that, that letting that flow through him, that's what fed him. Remember he said, they were like, well, what do you mean you're not hungry now? What, did, some, did somebody bring it? Did that woman bring him something? And he says, no, you don't, you, you don't, I have food that you don't understand. It's, it's doing the will of God. What was the will of God? To let that love flow. To be determined to chase after and find that woman at that well. And we are called to carry and share this love too. As I said, we're going to sing this song. If you'll give me just a few more minutes, we'll sing this song. And it's, um, if the praise team could come back up. I don't know where you are now. Come on back up. Come on down. It is with great intentional purpose that we've begun this sermon series. Five weeks, four more weeks after this. And don't worry, I won't be preaching all of them, so you won't have to hear me every week. Um, but it's with great intentional purpose that it begins with the love. Just like everything, His power, everything that's good comes from God's love, well, this sermon series begins with love as its foundation and flows. Everything else will flow from that love of Christ. It is foundational. And this song is an unfolding, a, a revealing of the beautiful, loving, grace-filled nature of God. The song we're about to sing, it's called So Will I. Whenever we see, it, 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 it reveals, the, the, the song goes through and begins in creation like we did at this sermon this morning and goes through and reveals His nature, His beautiful grace, His truth, and His love for all of us. And whenever we see God move or stirred by His revealed truth, the response is natural and expected. And some people even say when we experience God, it, it demands a response. His presence demands a response. His grace, His love demands a response. And that's what this, that's what the, the, the idea with the so will I. One of the lyrics that says, if the rocks cry out and praise, so will I. If the wind goes where you tell it, so will I. 